Jesus, light to the nations and glory of Israel. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of December 27, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. Rev. David Pelegi on the first Sunday of Christmas reminds us that Jesus came into this world fragile and susceptible to political, religious, and economic powers. Jesus identifies with the human family because we too all live in fragile situations. The one whose name is salvation came to save us from sin and so much more. To be saved, to walk in the light, and to know the glory of God means we are freed from the fear of death and from death itself. However, the path to eternal divine life is to follow Jesus down into humility and sometimes even suffering. As 2020 draws to a close, prayerfully consider making a year-end gift to Christchurch Jerusalem. The pandemic has decimated Israel's tourism sector, leaving many without work and leaving our usually bustling property quiet and empty. Still, Christchurch continues to minister to locals in need, whether spiritually or physically. To make a donation to the Church Fund or the Mercy Fund, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org slash donate. Once again, ChristChurchJerusalem.org slash donate. Toda! Now, on to our Gospel reading. Reading this Sunday is taken from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus for him, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph And his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child 
is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will even pierce through your own soul that will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, a daughter of Phaniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And coming in at that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. This is the gospel of the Lord. So please be seated. And let's pray. So Father in heaven, as we think of these words, what it means to be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, we pray that the scripture, and even more so the Lord Jesus, would indeed be a light to each one of us. And we pray that um, you will reveal him to each one in a deeper, more intimate way so that we may hear his voice and live in a way that pleases him and brings him glory. We ask this for his sake. Amen. This is um, really a, an opportunity to, to say a few words about the context, the Jewish and the human context, really, in, uh, into which uh, Jesus was born, and to think a little, perhaps a little more deeply uh, about the encounter that the baby Jesus has with Simeon. Of course, for most of us, uh, our context of Christmas or the Christmas holiday is one of uh, Northern Europe. We think of snow. We uh, think of uh, chestnuts ro roasting on an open flame. Some of us remember the little drummer boy who is out in the cold. Of course, we have all of the razzmatazz of shopping and gifts and, and uh, Christmas tree. Christmas trees and basically our um, uh, customs or our traditions, which have spread from Northern Europe all uh, around the world, reflect, yes, a particular uh, geographical, geographical area. But I'd like to just suggest that the, the uh, birth story or the story of Jesus or the context of Jesus is some, sometimes, uh, certainly does get left out. Now we have uh, something here I think that's very universal and at the same time something very particular 
to the Jewish people. And so the story of Jesus and his birth hopefully will be a comfort to us. And it's also a comfort, an ultimate comfort to the people of Israel. And so let's begin with the human. And um, while we were having some staff dinner last night, um, the guide of our Heritage Center, Idan, was talking to me. And he, he mentioned to me uh, something that he says very often to uh, Israeli Jewish groups. And they frequently ask him at this time of the year, well, what is these... What is this birth narrative all about? What, is, what are these birth stories all about? Why do we find them, uh, you know, in the gospel? What's, why are they so important? And Idan has a really brilliant answer. I was very, um, in a way, very deep and very touching. He says that he, he believes that um, the birth stories, especially that we find in Luke and Matthew, well, I think, the, well, in actual fact, those are the only two places where we find such stories. But these birth stories really highlight, yes, the fragility of Jesus. Yes, that in, born into this world, the Son of God, the Messiah, that his life is at risk. Yes, that um, there is a, um, you might say, a, a certain danger that actually he may not he he may not make it to adulthood, and that frag, that fragility, uh, it is on one hand it's because of the political situation, the religious situation in which uh, Jesus finds himself, the economic uh, his economic situation. Jesus is born poor. Jesus is born poor. He's not born rich. A lot of faith preachers around the world who make uh, mention or try to convince us that somehow Jesus was rich and therefore we need to be uh, economically well off uh, uh, like Jesus was. But again, Jesus comes from a poor family. He comes from a place uh, that's obscure. He comes from a family that's not, again, not very well known certainly not socially connected, yes. And I think what's, what's uh, essential in all this is that uh, Jesus identifies, yeah, certainly with most of the human family, because we live in those same, those same circumstances. Life for each one of us is also fragile, and it could be cut short in an instant. We could end up being victims of uh, political violence or a natural disaster. And the vulnerability of Jesus as a baby that's expressed in these stories is, of course, Jesus comes and, the, uh, and he, Jesus comes and he becomes flesh and he lives our life and he identifies with us. Again, life is dangerous, life is fragile, and yet Jesus fully identifies, yes. And ultimately, when we talk about the incarnation, which we will do next week, 
the incarnation is nothing more, I think, or maybe I shouldn't say that, is partially to be understood as an exchange. Jesus comes and lives our life, yes, as the Son of God, as the God himself, in order to fully identify with our weaknesses and our struggles. And as he lives that life, yes, in a victorious way, and he overcomes, he then asks us, each one of us, to share in his life. Yes, to share in that divine life and to share not only his joys, but also to share his sufferings. Yes, he lives our life and yet he invites us to live his life. And by the way, that's the definition of eternal life. Eternal life, as we understand in the scripture, is nothing more, yes, than sharing in this divine life, especially the life that Jesus has with the Father. So in a human way, we're talking about fragility. We're talking about vulnerability. Yes, something that Jesus and his parents uh, experience with all the fears and all the necessary faith uh, in God. There's also, uh, there's also a context here that's geographical. As I said, most of our geography of Christmas is very romantic, very warmly located in some place that's snowy. Uh, again, Northern Europe, we all hope it snows for Christmas. Could be Antarctica with Santa and his helpers. You know, Santa's workshop is somewhere up there where it's very cold. But um, perhaps not surprisingly, almost half of Luke's narrative, birth narrative, takes place in the temple of Jerusalem, where most likely there was no snow and no elves and no reindeer. And so we have to ask ourselves, Jerusalem, the temple, you know, what is all this about? And here we have not only a universal story, but also a very Jewish story as well. And uh, this is something that we'll, I think, come to, hopefully come to in, in uh, just a minute. But, this, but the, the temple, yes, uh, the land of Israel, this is a place of God's revelation. And perhaps we remember Isaiah 2, where it says that the, um, law, the word of the Lord should go forth from Zion and the law should go forth from Jerusalem. Yes, at the center of Jerusalem, the center of Zion is the temple and where God is dealing with his people and revealing himself. Yes, is in a very special, particular place. It's in Jerusalem. And um, it's quite, I, th I think it's significant that uh, some of the most important things that happen in the life of Jesus and the early church happen, from, happen in the temple or happen in Jerusalem. This is not some coincidence, but yes, it's, it's, we should understand it as a fulfillment of the word of the Lord. And there's not only a Jewish geography, there's a Jewish piety in this story. And that Jewish piety is that Jesus has parents who are devoted to the law of the Lord. They're devoted to the Torah. 
It is not something burdensome for them. It is not uh, legalistic. Instead, it's something that uh, I think that from the text, it's evident that it is something that they would lo- that they love to do. It's their ex- the way they express their love for God by being obedient to his commandments. And so five times in um, Luke chapter 2, it talks about his parents doing things, yes, in fulfillment, yes, of the law of the Lord, in fulfillment of the law of Moses. They, of course, have him circumcised on the eighth day, and um, not only circumcised on the eighth day, they have him, uh, he is named on the eighth day. Uh, this, by the way, this, this custom, which is, which is very prevalent uh, in the Jewish world today, is only mentioned in the Talmud you know, about the year 400. Yet already we know from the Gospel of Luke, which was probably written before the year 100, Yes, we know of this Jewish custom or this Jewish tradition, as we know of uh, many other such traditions that the Jewish people um, still um, uh, still preserve to to this day. So there's a circumcision of Jesus. His mother goes to a ritual immersion bath uh, after uh, the 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 period as prescribed in Scripture. They then bring him to Jerusalem to, uh, to offer a sacrifice. And again, the indication is that they're poor. Of course, it's quite a mystery as to why, yes, a firstborn son needs a sacrifice. And uh, many of the Bible commentators uh, in the time of Jesus, they pondered this question. And in all seriousness, they really couldn't come up with an adequate answer. And suggested, and it's preserved for us, yes, in Jewish commentary, that perhaps uh, the, the, woman, the, the new mother needed to offer a sacrifice because she had sinned. And someone asked, well, what sin uh, does someone commit by having a baby? And the answer was, well, she took a false oath. What false oath did she take? She swore, undoubtedly, in the middle of her labor, that she would never have another child again. And so the parents of uh, Jesus, by the way, are, are incredibly special. We talk about Jesus, Mary as being a model disciple, and we're trying to figure out all kinds of ways in which we can um, rightly honor Mary. So we talk about her obedience, her trust, and and those are important. But one of the things I think we miss, and it's really important, is how she shapes the life of her son, Jesus. And so maybe one of the first things that always impresses me about her, uh, even though she may have been a Jewish peasant, maybe she didn't know how to read, I'm not sure she knew anything about uh, quantum mechanics, but like so many other Jewish school children or, or young Jewish, maybe she wasn't a school child, or young Jewish uh, boys and girls or uh, teenagers, they knew huge amounts of scripture. 
and had downloaded the Word of God and memorized uh, large portions of the Scripture. And so their heart was filled, yes, uh, with God's Word. And uh, when Mary is approached by an angel, what comes out of her mouth? Basically, she's paraphrasing, yes, Hannah. Uh, when Hannah is told that uh, after being barren for many years that she's going to have a child who will later be Samuel, yes, her, her response, her joyful response is very similar to what we read in Luke's gospel, very similar to, to how Mary responds. Now, if you, if you th- uh, maybe think of uh, critical biblical scholarship, uh, many modern commentators and critics would say, well, no doubt uh, Luke, uh, the writer of the gospel, took those words from Hannah and he put them in the mouth of Mary. Yeah, but there's a better explanation. And again, that explanation is that um, many people, yes, uh, at the time of Jesus, had a love for the Word of God. We know this. And uh, because of readings in the synagogue or um, learning, to, uh, learning to read at home or in a schoolhouse, knew, yes, large passages of Scripture and committed them to memory. And secondly, what impresses me uh, about Mary is that when the angel comes to her, and says, you uh, are going, uh, you are pregnant, and you are going to bear a son. She says, how can this be so? I'm not married. Yes, the minute she says yes to God is the minute that she uh, takes upon herself, yes, and uh, she she literally, you you might say in later language, language that her son uses uh, many years after this event, she has to pick up her cross because she will be misunderstood. She will be mocked. She will be humiliated because not everyone's going to believe this story. And she says yes to God in the most difficult circumstances. And what about her husband, Joseph? You don't think much about Joseph because we have so, so little evidence. But certainly we hear about, we hear that he's a man of compassion because when he hears this news or hears this story about Mary, he could have very easily, you know, you know ran through the small village, Hamlet of Nazareth, saying, I'm embarrassed. I've been shamed. Look what uh, she has done to me. Look how she's uh, brought disrepute on my name. I therefore diver- di- divorce her. But it says, no, he wants to do it quietly. Yes, and these are all qualities that we see in the life of Jesus, do we not? Yes, the, the, the love that Jesus has for the scripture, his knowledge of the scripture, which, by the way, is quite phenomenal. Um, his abil- his uh, ability to see his mother as a model and to make difficult decisions, even decisions that will bring, again, misunderstanding, 
shame, uh, suffering, a decision that has to be made in faith to trust God. And this is, of course, the decision that Jesus has to make to go to Jerusalem and to the cross. And, Je and how many times do we read in the text that Jesus, is, uh, Jesus looks upon someone with compassion? Where does he get the compassion from? He gets it from his parents. So God chose very well for Jesus. It wasn't an accident. These weren't the kind of parents that showed up to church every week, you know, 15 minutes late, sat in the back row, and left early. Okay? They're, they had a commitment and a piety which is going to be influential. This is surely part of, this is surely part of the Jewish context of this story. And let's go a tiny bit, let's go just a little further, because here we have Simeon and Anna. And they, too, also express a Jewish piety. There's fasting. There's praying. They are waiting. Simeon is being led by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit. And he takes the baby Jesus in his arms and he says the following. And this is what, these are the words um, that I think, again, have a universal context and a Jewish context. They're very famous words. They're on the banners here at Christ Church and they're on our website. Uh, but they're very, again, very important. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. Uh, this may be um, Simeon saying, I'm ready to pass on to my reward. Or it might, he, he might be saying, okay, I have done the assignment. I've finished the assignment you have given me, which is to wait patiently, yes, for your salvation. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people. All people, Jews and Gentiles. Um, and then this is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to your people, Israel. So we latch on to that, especially here at Christ Church. A light, for a light to the Gentiles and the glory to your people, Israel. And those are that's very beautiful. Light and glory, which are interchangeable. But what does it mean? What's it all about? You know, the first several chapters of Luke are very, very, uh, you might say, um, have many references or connections to the book of Isaiah. And uh, it's, all, it's in the book of Isaiah, uh, in the book of Luke itself, that we learn actually that light is a parallelism or it's a synonym for salvation. And oftentimes when the prophet Isaiah talks about light, he's talking about salvation. This would be a little bit different, for, I think, than perhaps how we think of it, because we often say, Jesus is the light of the world. Yeah, but... What does that mean? Well, Jesus kind of shows the way. 
It's, but it's more than that. It's more than something passive. Yes. Uh, for example, I'm reading from Luke, uh, sorry, from Isaiah 49. And it says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servants, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Yes, light here is the same as salvation. And by the way, notice that Israel being a light to the nations isn't something passive. There's something active in it, something proactive. And of course, um, talking about this is about the nations, but uh, going back to uh, Isaiah 46, verse 13, it says, I am bringing my righteousness near, it is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant to Zion, I will, sorry, I will grant salvation to Zion my splendor to Israel. Splendor, light, salvation. Yes, it's all the same. And so what, what, does, what is Simeon saying? Simeon is saying, um, you know, that using Isaiah, that light and salvation, of course, are synonymous. But I could, by the way, read... Um, uh, passages from um, the, the Luke chapter 1, in which we also have the, the same uh, understanding of what it means to be, what salvation means, or our understanding of salvation, yes, is connected to light, splendor, or glory. But if that's the case, yes, light to the nations and the glory of Israel this is salvation, then we have to ask the question, so what does it mean to be saved? And here we need, also we need the, the context of Luke and Acts, because the best way to interpret Luke, the first way, is to, to use Luke to help us understand Luke. And in this case, since Luke wrote the book of Acts, to, to use Luke and Acts to help us to understand uh, those passages which may seem uh, fuzzy to us. And so if we use, if we look to the Gospel of Luke, we find a, a revelation. And that revelation is that what it means to be saved is that Jesus is not simply my personal Savior, but there's something much bigger and something much more. He's not simply saving me from sin, which is true. But that's only a foundation. That's only a beginning. Because again, if we use the Gospel of Luke, here we discover that salvation includes something very broad. And Luke doesn't know about the social gospel and the spiritual gospel. It's one gospel. And so to be saved, to walk in the light, you might say, Yes, to know the glory of God for this gospel in the book of Acts means that uh, we are freed from the fear of death, not to mention death itself. We are healed. You know that healing in the book of Luke 
Yeah, the word uh, is often uh, interchangeable with the word being saved. So to be healed from a disease is to be saved, to be delivered of a demon, yes, to be set free from being oppressed, from being deceived, from uh, being imprisoned, yeah, is to be saved, to be restored to a community, yes, for there to be repentance and reconciliation is a part of what it means to be saved. To, um, the word be saved in Greek can mean to be rescued. To be rescued, yes, from uh, difficult circumstances is to be saved. You know, when the jailer at Philippi um, yells out to Paul after, you know, the earthquake, and he thought his prisoners you know, had all escaped. What must I do to be saved? I'm not sure he was thinking about where his soul was going to spend eternity. Yes. What must I do to be rescued from this situation? Because if these prisoners escape, I'm going to be held responsible. And so when God oftentimes delivers us from dire straits or difficult circumstances, that's, that's a part of what it means to be saved. And being saved is not something that happens to us once. Yes, there's a starting point. That starting point is always, always, you know, saying yes to Jesus. But there, it continues because the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, for example, understands salvation is um, not something that happens in the past, something that is continuous, Yes, if we're in prison to pornography, we still need to be saved. If we're in prison to the fear of death, we still need to be saved. If we can't say, I'm sorry to someone, forgive me, yes, we still need to be transformed. That's how Luke would understand salvation. Some people say, no, that's sanctification. But I don't think it's true for Luke. And I don't necessarily think it's true for the book of Acts. Okay, there's something bigger. Now, all of this, yes, that God wants to rescue us, yes, that God wants to deliver, that he wants to heal, that he wants to, yes, all of this should uh, make us, uh, sh we should be able to respond joyfully. And it is certainly true Yes, one thing we get right in our culture, yes, okay, it's not the little drummer boy or the materialism, but that indeed Christmas should be a holiday of joy. And reading through Luke's birth narrative, I don't know how many times we find uh, uh, joy becomes uh, important. You know, when Mary meets Elizabeth, the baby jumps for joy. When um, Mary, you know, sings praises to the Lord, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Again, despite her, her very difficult uh, circumstances, which, are, which will cause her, yes, a lot of grief. When John the Baptist is born, people all around uh, the area begin 
begin to praise God. When the angels uh, appear to the shepherds, they say, we have a message of great joy. Yes, so I think the way that we respond to this light and this glory is with joy. But there is, a, I suppose, a little bit of a, a kick in all of this. Because despite this great joy, we read uh, the following. It says, uh, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too. So in the midst of this great joy, this fasting and praying and finally waiting for the Messiah in the most auspicious of places, the temple, we hear that there's going to be suffering. And we, but we already have hints of it um, where um, the, um, in Mary's song where he, we hear that, um, you know, God is going to scatter the proud and bring down the rulers um, from their thrones and lift up the humble. And he's going to fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away. So it's not all peace, love, and understanding. Yeah, there are people, people are going to oppose. And people are going to say no. And there's going to be opposition. And there's going to be, there is going to be suffering. There will be misunderstanding. And here, it specifically points to the misunderstanding of the Jewish people. It will cause many to fall. And it would be very easy to kind of point fingers at the Jewish people and say, ah, ah they missed it. I have, um, I'm totally convinced that this also applies to us who are Gentiles. Because we too have misunderstood. We, we have misunderstood Jesus and often misunderstood what the cross is all about. Because here I think the sword and the cross, might, there might be something interchangeable. And we have used the cross to persecute people, not only the Jewish people, but others. And we've used a thin veneer of Christianity to go to war. Yes, uh, you know, one Christian kingdom against another for glory or trade routes. I'm, I'm reading this book about the history of the Mediterranean. And uh, this, um, this book covers the Mediterranean from, you know, 5,000 BC up into the present. And uh, I'm, at, I'm at the part where it's just one Christian king, the, the Genoa versus Pisa, um, and Florence against, you know, Catalonia. And it's one Christian, the French against the Portuguese. It's one Christian kingdom, you know, going to war against another. And they're all throwing around the name of Jesus. And so it's caused us to be confused it's caused us misunderstanding. It's caused us to fall, but it's also caused a fall amongst the people of Israel. Yes, it's also brought misunderstanding. But what's encouraging here, I hope, is that it says that, the, that there is also the rise 
it's not only that the Jewish people somehow lost it. Woven into this story, yes, is God's faithfulness. Yes, God's ongoing faithfulness for the people of Israel. And just as they fall, they, they will also rise. And it's in Luke's gospel that we read uh, in chapter 13 that in the future, Jerusalem will say yes to the Messiah. And we read in chapter 24 that Jerusalem will be pushed down, yes, or will be beaten down by the uh, Gentiles, but there will be a day, there will be a time, you know, of its redemption. So somehow, in a very mysterious way, the cross, the message of Jesus, Jesus, who's the glory of Israel, yes, is going to be the one who brings redemption to the Jewish people. And so it's a story of first suffering and then of redemption. This is a pattern that we see, um, that we see through the prophets. And ultimately, it should be a hope even for us because that same, you might say, paradigm of going down to get up is also our paradigm as well. Yes, whether any believer in Jesus, any follower of Jesus, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, the way up is down. Just as Jesus went down in order to rise, he went down to the grave in order to to be resurrected. So too, for us, in order to find new life, yes, in order to find new life, we go down. And that going down is the, one of the ways that we respond to this good news of light or this good news of salvation. It's all well and good that, you know, Jesus is the light of the world, yes, or he's a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, but it demands a response from each one of us whether we're a Jew or a Gentile. And that response requires, first and foremost, faith and repentance, but it very well may require us to, to deny ourselves, to sacrifice something, yes, to even suffer. And sometimes some of us are called, yes, into the fellowship of his sufferings, as we live, share the life that he lived, and some of us are not. But it requires a response, and it may require a sacrifice. We're not working for our salvation, yes, but we do have to make an effort, an effort as we've discussed here in the past is not, uh, should not be confused with earning, yes. We have a great salvation, and we can indeed be joyful, even in the midst of picking up our cross and following him. And the reason we can be joyful is because Jesus not only saves us from our sins, but because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, yes, whether we're going down or going up, whether we're suffering or having to practice self-denial. Yes, yes, Emmanuel is with us. Yes, to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to ultimately, yes, bring us to a place, yes, 
that we spend eternity with him. So, Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of your birth. Lord, thank you for coming and sending your son to be vulnerable, just as we are vulnerable, to live a life of fragility, to live a, a life in the midst of danger. And thank you for your faithfulness to the people of Israel. Thank you that even though they have fallen, that in some way and somehow you will bring them redemption. And Lord, we look for the consolation of Israel. And we pray that your son Jesus will continue to be more and more of a light to the Gentiles, starting with us in the church. Yes. And... Um, uh, bringing and being revelation to those who don't, who have never seen this light or do not know this salvation. And so, Father, we ask these things for his sake. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.